Hello, my fellow Brappentonians, and welcome to Brap Talk. This is a weekly podcast where we discuss the happenings of the motorcycle industry. I am your host, Jensen Beeler, and joining me on this two-wheeled adventure is my brother in Brap, Mr. Shaheen Alvandi. Hello, everybody. <laughs> the Shah of Brap, the as Shah. he is known to his people. I like it. People are starting to email me and text me as Shaw. Yeah, it's starting to thing. It's, it's a thing now. You've started a thing. Bringing it back. Bringing it back, yo. 1979 we, called. <laughs> yeah, 1979. <laughs> uh, not going to go there. Not going to go there because that's just going to get us in trouble. Eh. The struggle is real. Struggle is real. <laughs> we said that last week. <laughs> <laughs> Which, by the way, um, did you see we got a really cool invite? No. To Israel? Really? Do you not check your email? I, I do not check the Brap Talk email well, as much as I should. I don't know where it is. I'll find it later. But we had a really cool listener who invited us to come to Israel and ride motorcycles and then talk about it. Done. Sign me up. Dude, I'm so in. It's not even funny. I have so many stupid Delta miles. Let's do it. (laughs) We're going to upgrade so hard. Oh, yeah. Like exit seats at least. Comfort plus maybe. (laughs) Perhaps. Bring me a soda water. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Apologies to our listeners. We're getting out a little late with this episode because the Shah and I are a little under the weather. We're a little... Sick. Yeah. Um, which hopefully means like I've got that good, sexy, like raspy voice thing going it on. It is a very one nine hundred soundy. Hello. Hopefully and thank it, you for calling Brap <laughs> <laughs> <Rap> Talk. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully it doesn't sound like a raccoon going through my trash. Um <laughs> we'll just have we'll just have to find out in editing. But um the good news is because we waited so long, we didn't wait that long, we waited like an extra day. We've got some interesting stuff to talk about, Shane. So I'm excited about that. Yes. But before we get there, just to tease it a little bit, uh, what have you been doing on motorcycles lately? I went dirt biking. Um, As I said several episodes ago, I was going to do a little more dirt biking this winter to kind of keep the cobwebs from happening. And also, I really want to do a lot more BDR riding uh, on my big Multistrada. And so I figured what better way of honing that skill than by taking my beloved Alta out to the Oregon, uh, you know, off-road areas. And uh, yeah, so the here here's how my brain works. I think if I'm going to learn how to ride something like that, I need to go somewhere where it's like a very controlled environment. And, you know, like a track day, have somebody show me how to do the things and like go to group C and then graduate to group B and then maybe at some point be in group A. However, that's not how it works when you have a bunch of friends that are really, really, really fast riders, people you and I know. And I get to like just get thrown into the deep end immediately, which let's, is hilarious. Let's call them gentlemen of the industry. Gentlemen of the industry. And that's exactly what they are, gentlemen and ladies of the industry. And dude, these are people I drink beer with, so I feel like they should be as fat and out of shape as me. And they're not. When they get on an off dirt bike, they're like, see you later, man. Good luck. And so... um. What can I say? I got to experience a black diamond trail for the first time. And I lived to tell the tale. I only fell once, only because uh, it turns out momentum is your friend when you're, you know, trying to hop, skip, and slide across slippery, rocky, muddy terrain in, in the Northwest. And uh, if you slow down at all, everything just goes fleh and you fall. It goes like how? It just fleh. Okay. That's exactly the noise it makes. Fleh. <laughs> it's french for ah shit i've fallen <laughs> <laughs> so yeah uh no i i went uh dirt biking with a fellow couple of fellow uh brappers 
and uh, had a really, really, really good time. It's unbelievable how gorgeous the Pacific Northwest gets when it's drizzling and raining and muddy and uh, yeah. So once I was able to catch my breath, I would look around and right as I caught my breath and had a good time looking around, they'd be like, all right, let's go next trail. I'm like, oh, but I just want to take a nap. Um, but I didn't die and I didn't break anything. Which is key, is especially key. in the wilderness. It was, I was just, um, just the other day I was looking at, uh, some Garmin products. Not that like there's a plug there for Garmin or anything, but it was just, that's what happened to be. There's a couple brands I'm sure they're doing this where they have the, satellite enabled emergency SOS thing. I bring that up because I was having a conversation with the the salesperson about how cool it is that there's this technology now because, because of the sport that we do, because of where we go when we take, take the bikes and you do the things, how great it is to have at least that safety net of a product like that or, or similar products um, to be able to be like, yeah, okay, I'm out doing the thing. Oh no, I like broke my femur and like, I'm totally effed. I need to get, you know, medevaced out of here or whatever it is. Did he, did he show you the, the details of that product? Cause it's pretty neat. We got to use it on our big long trip to uh, Colorado and back. Uh, a little bit, just showing me how the, it syncs with the phone. Right. And I, I've played a little, a little bit around with those kind of units before. <laughs> so the one thing that I learned was that you can do because they have different layers of subscription, right? You can right. like start with the cheapest, which is just basic stuff, and then go really all out. Um, the cheapest one allows you to have free preset messages that you can right. just send, right? Right. So like one of the messages should be something along the lines of, I've fallen and I can't get up, which is fine, right? That's what helps right. you. If you don't tell your significant other that that's how it works and any text sent back and forth costs money, <laughs> the shit gets funny because you're trying to like tell them not to, and then some people like to like send three words per text. I, that shit drives me bananas anyways. But that kind of sort of happened to us <laughs> one of the nights and it's like, stop texting right now. This is costing money. <laughs> this is literally $5 every time you text me. Knock it off. It's actually not bad. I think it's uh, 10 or 15 cents per text. So call it 20 cents per two-way. Yeah. Which when you think about it, like when, when cell phones first came out, that is kind of how yeah. much text messages cost. And it kind of feels like an old Nextel phone anyway. So it, it made me feel like I was back in, you know, early 2000s, late 90s. I, I like the technology. The subscription thing drives me absolutely bonkers. And I don't I don't have like a, a reasonable argument to be like, well, it shouldn't have a subscription. Da, right. da, 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 da. But just the idea of like, I'm going to have to pay $15 a month or whatever it is, yeah. $12 a month to go use it while while I'm out doing my ride and then I got to remember to like turn it off and <laughs> I don't know. I think if you're I think if you're like me and you're of the frugal mind, you learn to t- turn it off. The cool thing is you don't have to sign up for a year. You can just say, "Hey, I need this for a month." Yeah. Right? The bad thing is you have to turn it on. I think you have to pay for the full month. So even if you're going for a week-long trip. Right. But frankly, I think that's worth the $15 to spend to say just in case shit hits the fan. Yeah, uh, I mean, you do the the risk analysis the expected value the cost of saving your life right in the middle of the wilderness fifteen dollars is a pretty cheap insurance that's nothing plan. That's, that's pretty nothing cheap. i'm cool i'm cool with that that's like five mountain dews we're good <laughs> where are you buying your mountain dews this is poor truthfully, truthfully, no like the I, I do the mountain dew tax where i'm like yeah i could go to the safeway and get like a two liter for a dollar right but then i i'm gonna drink a two liter so oh, I you commit in- to the two I, liters? I intentionally Ooh. buy like the cans that cost like a dollar or two dollars at my stupid, you know, shitty market down the street. 
to, to penalize myself for, for drinking it. <laughs> I like the self-imposed tax. Yeah, it's a self-imposed tax. <laughs> it's not working, by the way. I'm just I mean, becoming... You, you I'm look just pretty good. You've been money. maintaining. But you did tell me you had some fried chicken nuggets earlier. Oh, my God. I did. Oh, so we were joking before the show that we should have like fake advertisers just, just because. This show brought to you by shoes. Yeah. We like to wear them. My, my first thought was Super Deluxe. <laughs> so for, for, for our Portland listeners, Super Deluxe on, what is it, Powell? The 50th and Powell, I yeah, think. Yeah, it's right where Powell and Foster come together. Right. There's a Taco Bell across the street. Don't okay. go there. Where's yeah. Taco Bell? Uh-huh. Um, but Super Deluxe, it's like a, it's a one-off fast food chain in Portland, and it's really good. And we found out, weirdly enough, even though they're a burger joint, they're fucking chicken nuggets man i think i'm over the burger i, I think I, about I think the chicken could, nuggets once a week at I least think take it take it or leave it really those chicken nuggets though i mean the burger is really really good so those, those are strong words you're saying here Th- those chicken nuggets are amazing they're so juicy mm. all right portland listeners go there it's called super deluxe tell them we sent you they'll tell give them you we like 10 percent off <laughs> and I'm, shaking then, my, I'm shaking my head now tell us tell us tell us what you think better i want to hear about this I, I love food almost as much as i love motorcycles so i'm curious the burger the chicken nuggets, or as I like to compromise, the fried chicken sandwich. I got to try the fried chicken yeah, sandwich. Yeah, it's like the best That's, of both worlds. That could be good. Uh, fries are decent, too. Fries are all right. They just always forget their salt. Yeah. We should move on. <laughs> mm, food. <laughs> the reason I'm talking about it so passionately right now is because I've, I've, I've tried to gain a little bit of horsepower by losing a little bit of weight. And so I have taken away bread and beer. Oh, God. And sugar, oh man, just out of my life for at least this month. It's not, it's not a resolution thing. It's just this Kickstarter for me to kind of gain a little bit of horsepower in the form of losing maybe like 10, 15 pounds. Which is real. It's cheap horsepower, it's man. Real. It's real. You're just leaving horsepower on the table, basically. Yeah, li- literally. Yeah. One of the things I, I was thinking about, Shane, before we got down this rabbit hole, you brought up riding with people who are quicker than you. Right. And that was always something um, we learned in sports. I like a cross country coach and he used to say like, if you want to be a faster runner, run with people that are faster than you because they'll push you outside of your comfort zone. And that's where, you know, like there's like the great meme, like here's the circle. It's called, it's labeled comfort zone. Then there's like another one over there. And it's like, this is where the magic happens. It's outside (laughs) the comfort zone. It's true though. It it is 100% true because you don't learn when you do the things you're comfortable with. You learn when you're doing things that are unfamiliar, that are outside of what you perceive your skill set to be. Right. And more often than not, you rise to the occasion. Yeah, and there's got to be, you know, there's got to be a little voice of reason in your head that tells you to, you know, it's okay to push yourself until that point of breaking. And so, you know, the thing that I've always been sort of cautious about, about writing with people that are faster than me is don't let my ego get in the way because I will get hurt. Right? There's a fine, there's a very, very fine line. It's hard to see. Yeah, there's a balance. But But that being said... I agree with you 100%. It's, uh, it's as the same my wife likes to always say. If you're, uh, I think somebody else said it, but if you're, if you're the smartest person in the room, then you're in the wrong room. Yes. Right? So if you're the faster, fastest person in that group, yeah, you're not really learning anything. You're having a good time probably, but you're not learning anything. But anytime I go out with the likes of you and learn, you know, ride something or a, or a certain motorcycle, I get faster every time. Uh, to the point where I went from group B to group A and on the racetrack, in about a year, year and a half, which is, that's a reasonable amount of time, I think. Because mm-hmm. uh, you got to do, you know, baby steps, little tiny jumps as opposed to big jumps. Uh, so I'm hoping to do that in the dirt bike now. I think you're, I think you're hanging out with the right people to do it. 
I think so too. I tell you what, I am sore as can be. I, I mean, I've played rugby. I have lifted lots of weights. I've done all kinds of things and nothing quite like a dirt bike to just remind you how fucking fat and out of shape you are. Yeah, I think um, I think when you look at I, I like that you're kind of doing this as the off season get get, get in shape kind of thing because I think right. that's what's a great uh, a great tool. Um, and you see it a lot with with racers. Well, they'll they'll ride motocross, they ride flat track, or they do supermoto. They have right. that kind of off season thing that keeps keeps them sharp. It helps them hone a skill set that's applicable to their road riding, and it keeps you in shape. It's a full body thing. Like really you can't does. underestimate how much, how much you're moving around on a bike. Like you think about it, like motorcycles, like shouldn't really be like this, this big physical, um, I was going to say endeavor, but that's not quite right. You know, this, <laughs> it is this, for me. This that's actually, those are good words for me. <laughs> this extraneous kind of like, or, or strenuous kind of thing, but it is, you know, surprisingly is for like, like, yeah, the bike's doing all the effort to get you up the hill, but you're still the one wrangling the bike right. around and, uh, uses muscles. So, it's interesting. It's a. It's been an exercise in learning how much core muscle I need to have because I don't necessarily have that strength because I haven't worked on it in a long time. My arms and legs are doing all the work. So at the end of the ride, after three, three and a half hours of riding, I am just mush. I'm dead. And then on top of all that, I'm going slower than the rest of the group. So I'm doing a little bit extra work. I feel like the faster you go, the more the bike kind of does its job better and it starts sort of floating. I would say like, especially when it comes to dirt riding, Newton's second law is is very relevant <laughs> and, you know like just the maintaining of your momentum keeping that the speed up right it, it is almost easier to ride fast than it is to ride slow it is that, it's, and that's a lesson i have to learn it's, it's, like, a, in my it's head a strong still. lesson um i always i'm always amazed like when i'm out riding and like i'm chasing someone that's faster than me, i'm like huh, you know what actually it actually is easier when you're going when you're going quicker because yeah. you, you hit that obstacle and instead of like it stopping you you kind of just roll right over it or Maybe there's a good lesson in that, in that it's okay to start on a smaller displacement motorcycle because you can go faster relatively, right? If, if the bike, let's say you're on a 300cc street bike on the track as opposed to a 600cc super bike, you're, you're able to kind of push that bike a little harder and not feel like you're at the ragged edge. Oh, yeah. But it allows you to learn more. It allows you to concentrate more. Uh, I, I, I will forever remember the day I rode a 400cc bike when you were on a leader bike and I was not even half as fast as you were, but I was, I was giggling the entire time in my helmet because I'm so used to riding leader bikes that any mistake that I was making on that little bike, it was just so easily taken care of because it wasn't so drastic. It wasn't trying to buck me to the next zip code. I've said it before and I'll say it again. There is something enjoyable about riding a slow bike fast. <laughs> Absolutely. And you definitely learn a lot more. I remember I did a Yamaha R3 launch and we did it at the West track at, thunder hill which is the the new one they built and it's very small it's very tight and it's very technical right and we're on the what tires were we on were they michelins i forget what tire it was the tire was not good really it was a shitty budget oriented tire and yamaha had a good reason for it and they were saying like you know most new riders they're gonna go they go they get the bike they they run through the tires and they bring it to the dealership and they just say like I want new tires. Right. You know, put on whatever was on there before. And they didn't want to have like a high spec performance tire that would be that tire. So then like the skippy comes in and they get slapped with like a $400, $500 tire bill. <laughs> right. You know, it'd be something that was kind of budget oriented. And they're it, looking yeah. for longevity and cheapness usually. Exactly. It, it, trying to go along the budget 
frame of mind for for the R3 and, the, and those who that do know and, and do want more performance and are taking it to the track, they already know their tire business. They're going in there. I want a very specific. I want this tire right, right here and this size. They already have that figured out. So they want to keep it easy for new riders. So I get it. But what the effect was, you know, we had maybe ten riders who I would say are all high level riders but have a varying degrees of skill set, but because the bikes were so close in performance and because you could only push them so far with their tires. Cause like you get it leaned over right around the time, like you're, you're dragging a knee <laughs> and the tire just starts chattering away. It's and it's literally at grip. its edge. Yeah. And it's just like, it's telling you in so many ways possible, like, Hey buddy, we're there. Like, <laughs> Do not yes, want to slow it down. <laughs> but it made a lot of fun because it made it for like really close riding. We actually had like our last session of the day was like four or five of us all going pretty much the exact same speed three inches off each other's wheels, you know, just in a line, like just trying to find that, that one little 10th of a second somewhere <laughs> that would just give us just enough of a push past on the, on the straightaway that we could make a pass. And it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. And we were going like 30 miles an hour. Yeah. It becomes less about life and death yeah. at that point. You're just having a good time. Yeah. And, and on a track like that, where it's very tight and it's very technical. I mean, like we were still hauling beans for, for that circuit, but it, I would say that was more of an enjoyable experience than a lot of the times I've had on a leader bike. Like a leader bike is work. When I'm oh, on a, a lot of when work. I'm on a super bike and I'm trying to put in a fast lap, that is work. Yeah. Not that it isn't work on a small bike like an R3, but it's a different kind of like physicality. I right. guess is what I'm trying to get to. Right. It's uh it definitely, you know, makes you focus on your lines, your braking points. Those matter, right? Where you brake and where you accelerate on a small bike really, really matters because you're going to gain a lot of time or lose time yeah. if you don't do it right. Whereas on a super bike, on a big bike, even if you mess up a corner, you can still try and pull that throttle extra hard and gain yeah. you know, time, gain that momentum that you lost. So no, I, I appreciate that. Now, my Alta has got basically four different riding modes and I am on level one. I put it on two to see what it's like and immediately regretted that decision by nearly hucking myself down a hill. Hmm. Uh, so yes, there is that much of a difference. Um, but all that to say, we rode for around three and a half hours. The bike had about a little under a half of a charge left to it. My body had a little under 1% charge left to it, <laughs> <laughs> but it felt really good. I just came home and sat there and had dinner. <laughs> just was reminiscing for the rest of the day. So I'm excited. I can't wait to go back out. This is my, that was my third time out and I'm, I'm dying for the fourth time. You know, we've been really lucky up here in in the Pacific Northwest. Our winter so far has been really mild. Really mild, yeah. So I remember Facebook's been reminding me we've we already had a couple snowpocalypses the uh -huh. last couple of years by this time. Um, we had a ride. I think I did a ride last year. I think it was a little bit earlier in the season than this, and that was like the last ride of the year where it was like snow on the ground, freezing fucking cold. Yep. Year like miserable the entire time. Yeah, because where we're riding is usually up. around a thousand or so feet elevation. So yeah. You know, it, it gets it gets frozen and icy and snowy pretty quickly, but nothing. Not last weekend, anyways. It was just like in the high 30s, low 40s. Mm -hmm. It drizzled a little bit. It's actually kind of neat. It's just enough to keep you cool because you get, I mean, I got really, really hot just riding around and moving around so much. Yeah. I really want you and I to go down to Salem and do the flat track nights that they have there. That'd be fun. I'm into it. Get, get your Alta kitted out. I'll yeah. get my Husky going. I, that's... So that's what I, that's what it's funny in motorcycling. I feel like such a newbie doing this. It's, it's amazing. It's such an ego shot because you put me on a sport bike or on a, on my, you know, big multi-strata and I can keep up with almost anybody toe to toe, put me on this dirt bike and now I have to learn how to turn all over again. It's such a different feeling. And that's what I'm having the hardest time with learning how to go downhill and turning through a, uh, through a switchback. It is terrifying to me. So I'm trying to figure out 
you know, how do you do this without leaning over? How do you, you know, how do you get into it without locking up the front tire? Or how do you hit it without having the rear end step out too much and have control on it? And so those are the things I'm trying to learn. Now, in hindsight, when I look at it, I'm doing okay. It's just I'm riding with these group A-level riders and I'm watching them fly through a corner. I'm like, I'm going to do the same thing. And I get hawked off the bike. <laughs> so, Sometimes learning is a painful experience. It's, it's okay. <laughs> but no, I like what you said about, about um, riding smaller bikes to, to get faster and all that. That's kind of where I'm at with the Kramer. That's kind of why I bought that. I wanted a bike that didn't have a lot of horsepower that I couldn't make a lap time up with my right hand. Right. I wanted to be able to make it up with, say, my left hand. Your right hand's index finger? Uh, I, don't, I don't know. Yeah, my right <laughs> hand's index finger. Um, and so, that I mean, that's I, I've got nothing to report in terms of what I've been riding because I've been slaving away. Yeah, I came home to, to a bare frame. I did it. I finally you, got dude, that little fucker off. You know what? I, I don't know if you can hear this, but I'm clapping my hands. Kudos. I did not think it was going to be as difficult as it was. There's probably a better way of doing it than the way I did it. Did the folks at Kramer give you any advice? No, it sort of probably like, don't do this. Probably would have been smart to call them. <laughs> that's that's on me. Um, yeah, just getting it all around the throttle body and. Do you know how to put it back together? This is an important question. I took lots of photos. <laughs> I I do foresee myself having to call Joe and be like, "Hey, buddy, so how does this how does this go back together? Do you have any photos? What do you is have this bolt diagrams? and where does it belong to? Because the bike's back together and I have this one well, bolt. This one <laughs> bolt and it's like four inches long. It looks important. <laughs> uh, Jensen, that's called the motor mount. Put it back in. That's bad. That's very bad. Um, yeah. So, so have you decided on a color now that it's off? We're getting there. So so very thankfully, we I think it was last show we talked about my lack of motorcycle design skills. Yep. The the brap talk slash asphalt and rubber listenership and leadership came to my rescue. I had a couple very talented professionals okay. uh, send me some ideas and some stuff. So ah, the internet working. It works very good. So hopefully uh, we'll have something good coming up. I'm still waiting for, for a couple designs uh, in the email box. In fact, I thought I was going to get them today. And if I check my email, it doesn't look like it. No, still don't have them. I'm thinking maybe a white frame. Okay, I'm in. I don't know. All right. I don't know. We'll see. It'll cool. be a surprise. Have you thought about maybe like nickel plate polishing it? I did talk about that. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. So, you know, make it real pretty. Take some nice pictures of it the way you did of my bike and then move on. This is very true. This is very true. Yeah. This has been an exciting process. I'll, I'll be curious to see where it goes. We'll obviously keep our, our listeners apprised of, of the situation because I'm sure they're very interested. I mean, they're invested now. <laughs> <laughs> You're in it whether you like it or not. <laughs> Um, rap talk brought to you by do it <laughs> newsy things there's some there's some newsy things yeah a couple of newsy things could be newsy things i think i want to talk about uh zero motorcycles first can we say the news is a buzz with some new things oh i like what you said i didn't uh-huh. even realize oh yeah everything we're going to talk about today is kind of electric it's basically it? all electric that's all i've read about in, in the last huh. 48 hours i didn't even think about that uh just just uh before we get into that today is the first day of the dakar rally it is. No electrics there. Ugh. Well, I mean, that requires serious range. Oh, yeah. And, well, I mean, the power's there, but the range is not there, as we learned a long time ago with Michael Sizz trying to just do the uh, the Isle of Man. Yeah. I mean, we've gone, I think we've come a long way since then with, with battery technology, but. We've come pretty far. I don't know if we've come a long way. Um, every year, there's there's like, a, let's call it a 10% improvement. But, okay. But not, not quite. That's like a. 
off the cuff kind of measurement. Right. Um, so it's getting better, but I mean, we're still pretty far away from gasoline in terms of uh, power density. There's still a lot of challenges with charging. I think it'll be a while before we see an electric bike at the uh, the Dakar rally or a similar rally raid type race. Um, this year's rally is in Peru. Okay. It's only Peru, which is a little weird. Oh, really? Not a three country deal? No. Yeah. Um, I'm going to forget which countries pulled out the last minute. I believe Bolivia was one of them and maybe Argentina. I was going to say either Argentina or Chile. Chile. That sounds huh. kind of right. Um, but it's basically, there's actually, there seems to be some momentum to bring the Dakar back to Africa. Ooh. Because I think South America is just kind of done with it. Those, over it. those countries are kind of having a hard time. They've got other priorities. I don't think they're as enthusiastic about having the race there. I don't think it brings them any more tourism than it already has. Right. The, the diminishing return is there now. It's such a difficult race to watch, I have to imagine, because oh. you know, it's such a... I mean, from your point of, uh, point of view as a journalist, I can't imagine trying to cover the thing. It is my least favorite event to cover, and this will be the second year where we don't cover it, partially because of that reason. Um, we used to cover it a lot in the past, and truthfully, it never got a lot of viewership. So that's the other issue, right? I don't think it's that popular in America. It's not that popular in America. I think a lot of people don't even know what it is. It's not uncommon for you to get a press release from one, you know, team that contradicts the press release from another team. (laughs) And it's not necessarily that they're wrong, although sometimes it is. It's just things change after. Are you telling me that two different news outlets will tell you two different stories? It's just really hard to get a straight a straight answer sometimes. And the ASO isn't exactly the most um, well-run race organization. Right. And yeah, it's just one of the things. And at the end of the day, like truthfully, this is what kind of did it for me. The site's called Asphalt and Rubber. It's a little bit outside of our our scope. Right. And... um, Not called Dirt and Paddles? Yeah. And I'm sitting there going like, why why are we spending so much time and resources and money covering a race that one, people aren't that interested in, and two, like really isn't our bread and butter? So I would would rather take that budget and cover like the Isle of Man TT in depth or Suzuka or whatever it is. Well, I think if it ends up moving to Africa, it'll probably get its viewership, the European side back anyways. It'll be easier for the Europeans to travel down to Africa and, and spectate from the points that they can. Oh yeah, for um, sure. You know, going from Europe to South America is a heck of a heck of a journey. Yeah, and it's just hard. You know, this comes back to to like what we're talking about the, the Garmin and the satellite systems. Like a lot of times, they're just in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, and so like they're uploading photos or press releases or just news via satellite via these like really unreliable signals. Like there, there has definitely been years of the Dakar where entire stages like no information came out. Because they were just so in the middle of nowhere, they right. couldn't get a signal out. And you just didn't know what was going on. And it took like 48 hours for them to update the news and be like, oh, yeah, by the way, this guy won that day. And you're like, oh, hey, now we know. So let me ask you this. Maybe you know the answer. There there are a handful of people in the U.S. and a couple of buddies of mine that that are interested in following and keeping up with the Dakar. What is their option? What's their best way of trying to maintain? I mean, Dakar.com. Is that it, basically? I mean... Truthfully, no publication is sending someone down there to cover it in person. So everything they're publishing is secondhand. Right. And having seen like some of the coverage from other publications and having seen my own, like I wouldn't say it's any more reliable. I mean, there's, there's definitely some people that do better jobs than others, 
but at the end of the day, we're getting it all from the same places. So yeah. following the teams on Twitter, um, following Dakar.com, that's that's really your only thing. I will say that the ASO is pretty good about putting up these um, daily recaps on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Those are those are really helpful and those are really good. They do a pretty good job churning out video content. Um, but at the end of the day, like the ASO is its own best coverer of the Dakar. You know, it's it really is that they, they control the whole scene because they're the only ones that are actually physically there. All right, well, you heard so, it here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which, Go somewhere else. Which again is why, like, we're not covering because it it's like, well, I'm not going to cover it any better than they are. So I'm just I'm just regurgitating information, and maybe we can be more reliable because we're better about grafting our information from multiple sources than others. Right. But I mean, like, the information's pretty limited here. I always want to be a market leader. Let's put it that way. I don't want to be a market follower. I'm definitely <laughs> that's and I, fair. like true. And I, look, I look at our coverage and I'm like, I'm a market follower. So that's Asphalt and rubber brought to you by not dirt, not dirt. Um, so that interlude aside, did you see this? This is new zero model. that's being teased. I did. Uh, I'm still trying to figure out what the F in the name means. What but the F the F means. Yeah. What the uh, F? I think we Fucking can awesome. Fucking fast. Fully, Furious. fully final. Fast and Furious. That's the noise it makes. I've heard some. I've heard some rumors. So it's interesting. So what? So what we're talking about is Zero Motorcycles is teasing a SR slash F model. Now they already have an SR model. That's like their street naked, high performance bike. I put high performance in quotes so you can right, see. Right, right. I see it. Um. So this this seems to be an evolution of that supposedly it's an all new platform which means should have newer batteries newer motor newer tech i'll be curious to see how much it carries over from the previous sr model right uh i've been hearing a lot of chatter about a fully fared uh zero that would be like a like a super bike yeah maybe an ff (laughs) maybe the f stands for fighter Ooh, i get it it's a street fighter you know, when you look at the photo, and we were able to blow it out a little bit with the with the brightness, and it does kind of look like it's a Street Fighter type bike. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was I'm I'm still expecting like a like a full fared sport bike from them, and that just hasn't shown up. So to see this, I was a little surprised. It sounds like it sounds like it's an up spec SR. It mm. sounds like it's gonna have a couple more bells and whistles. Maybe it's got a little bit more range. It sounds like the price tag is gonna be pretty high. Um. So be kind of, I mean, I'm kind of curious. I have some opinions about this bike, Shaheen, but I want to hear what your thoughts were first. Um, I, maybe it's cause I'm almost 40 years old. I'm a little tired of getting teased about these things. Like I, I don't, it's, it doesn't seem mind blowing to me. So I kind of want to see what the full, full gambit is it going to be? What kind of price are we looking at here? Is it going to be like the next story we're going to talk about? That's a lot more money than I thought it was going to be. Uh, not quite it, that high. I don't think, but I'm, I'm expecting around 20 G's. 20 G's is that do you think that's going to be the the expectation for a street going capable you know uh electric bike because alta sort of you know set i don't i don't know if alta is a good example to use because they're not around anymore but remember when their bikes first came out they were not cheap at all they were expensive and then they slashed a bunch of prices to see how it would do slash try to maybe make some money and and that's the time where you saw sales kind of go up when when the bikes became uh, comparative in pricing to their Japanese counterparts. Yeah, a couple things there. Alta's price slash 
from, from my understanding, came from that was to help lure in Harley Davidson as an investor. And I think part of that was to prove the market like, hey, if we can build an electric dirt bike at this price point, right. look how many of these fuckers we can sell. And maybe that price point was something that was obtainable if Harley Davidson came on as uh, an investor and a, and a part supplier and like they were able to have the the bargaining position that the largest American OEM has. Right. Um, I think anytime you talk about electrics, the, the biggest determination on price is going to be the battery and how much battery is on board. Yeah. Because you're still, it's not quite a thousand dollars a kilowatt hour. That's kind of what the old metric was, but it's closer to like, you don't know, 700 bucks, 500 bucks a kilowatt hour now. So that's a big chunk of change. And it then, is if you're talking about five to eight kilowatts. I think you're talking double that. Yeah. Uh, maybe triple that even. Ooh. So that's where like, you know, you look at a bike like the, I was going to say the lightning, which is like a horrible example. But, you know, they'll tease up to like 20 kilowatt hours and you're like, well, you know, right there, that means that's got to cost at least like $10,000 in battery. Yeah. You know, setting aside like Olin suspension and Brembo brakes and Marchesini wheels, 10 bucks in battery right there. Like the motors themselves don't cost $10,000. You know, like I, I should say an internal combustion motor. Right. Doesn't cost that much. So that's where you're going to start adding in price that wouldn't exist on the thermic side of the equation. So like a bike like this, like I don't know what the specs are, but like let's assume it's a premium type model. So let's assume maybe there's some Olin suspension or there's some, I don't know, fancy wheels and Brembo brakes and, you know, some electronics and stuff. Okay, so that's going to increase the price right there because you're talking more premium components. You're going to have to source them. And zero is still the size of a company that's really not going to get much of a break in terms of Yeah, they're not buying buying enough bulk of it. Yeah, I mean, they're only putting out about a thousand to two thousand units a year um so yeah it's going to be tough i think i think um we're going to talk about harley davidson in a minute here just to tease it but like you look at a company like that okay they're already going to get a good deal with brembo they're already going to get a good deal with whoever's providing the wheels and you know whatever supplier is doing electronics and things like this because they're 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 harley davidson they're buying the biggest ones out there Almost a quarter million motorcycles. You know, they have a lot of weight that they can throw around with there that um, a zero isn't going to be able to do. And Alta certainly isn't going to be able to do. Right. Um, so that's part of the challenge. And that's part of the the equation of, you know, some of the price and sticker shock that we see with electrics isn't because it's an electric. It's because it's a small company. And that's something we have to start getting a little bit of our mind wrapped around. We're like, you know, let's say like your typical zero costs $15,000. Okay, but if Honda made that exact same bike, that bike might cost $13,000 right. or $14,000 instead of the 15. Just because Honda's got more buying power. Honda's got, you know, more sway with those providers or just can like negotiate more effectively. Um and then you can start saying like, okay, well, and then there's this electric component and that electrical component and how can we make those cheaper and having that economy of scale will bring that down a little bit. So It'll be interesting to see. My biggest thing with Zero is I really just don't think this company's in business this time next year, Shaheen. I'm, you know, I'm I'm a little bit sad to agree with you because they're they're not being that exciting about what they do, and I think what they're doing is cool. But they're they're if you look at their all, all their other motorcycles, it almost seems like they're trying to make a cool electric bike for the everyday rider, and 
you know, motorcycling, let's just be honest, a lot of it is sex factor, right? It's got to be sexy. It's got to be good looking. It's got to make you feel cool. It's got to have You're the look. You're describing our podcast right now. We are the sexy podcast. We are the sexy. That should be our thing. Brap talk, the sexy podcast. Yeah. And this is why Especially I'm with my Brad. raspy uh, yeah, phone that sex voice, voice going duh. on here. Yeah. But so all that to be said, you know, they're, they're not necessarily a sexy company. Uh, oh, they're like the least sexiest company. Which is a bummer because, again, they're making a cool product, but it's like, are, who are you trying to appeal to with this thing? Because the the culture of motorcycling, that, that sex appeal, that cool badassery that comes along with it does not exist in this. So just from that perspective, nobody talks about them. Nobody is that interested about them. Nobody you know, leaps to their monitor to read the latest asphalt and rubber uh, uh, article about them. Not as much as when you put up a Harley, right? Absolutely. No, I, I can tell you just looking at the metrics like this zero story didn't get a lot of play. Whereas the Harley ones are blowing up. And, you know, some of that's like, okay, Harley. Harley is Harley. Harley is half the industry. Yeah. Anyway. Um, but the biggest issue I always have with zero, I have a lot of issues with zero, actually. <laughs> but one of the bigger ones that I have that I would say is more representative of the market that isn't just like a Jensen slash asphalt and rubber issue. It's the design. Like, it's like the least intriguing design yeah. that I've that is in the industry. And they just keep sticking to it. And it's just like, hey guys, they've been they've been in business for 13 years. They've been doing this, you know, effectively for the last 10 years, and they haven't really changed the design. They've they've tweaked it. They've they've iterated on it. It's evolved a little. But I mean, like when you sit there and you go, like, okay, guys, like you came out of the gates with like a hard C minus, and you've kind of studied it up to maybe like a C C plus. Like, and you're still sitting there churning it out, churning it out. Like that for me is like one of the number one things that kills this, their product for me. Because when they came out, these were horrible motorcycles. These were horrible, 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 horrible. Were they horrible? Horrible motorcycles. <laughs> like that, that used to be my litmus test on, on like who was calling a spade a spade in the industry was what their opinion was of early Somebody came out. Zero there, like, this is a great bike. All right, yeah, done. if you came out and said like, "Oh, 2009 Zero is the best bike," I'm like, "No, okay, you're obviously full of shit because this is a horrible, 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 horrible." Five minutes later, horrible, horrible, yeah. horrible, horrible motorcycle. It's like objectively bad. It goes back to like my my designs. This is not a question of taste. <laughs> this is objectively bad. And to Zero's credit, they have really improved the quality of their product the bikes that are out now are pretty good bikes they won't let me get on one but you, you know calling them horrible i've got my ways <laughs> but the the motors are better the the software is better they're increasing range the weight's pretty good the price point's pretty good they're still like kind of lackluster machines visually but i think i mean i think their their baggage from their earlier years is still kind of weighing them down but like I look at like this from just like, you know what, guys, you know what you need? You need a moonshot thing. You need something that's going to disrupt it. You need something that is completely new, yep. drops everything that you've, you've got in the past. No common parts been bullshit. Right. Come up with a clean slate design. Look at where the market is now. Look at where the design taste is now and build something for it. And they don't really seem willing to do that. It's. You know, I, I see it a lot in business. The the businesses that do well are the ones that look at the market and kind of analyze it and go, okay, this is what's working. I'm, I have a vision. 
and even if that vision is not exactly right there, I'm going to try to make it as close to that as possible because you're getting into business to make money. You're not just getting into business for the health of it. There's a lot of issues that come along when you when you open any kind of business. So to see a company like this kind of build, a, as you put it so kindly, a horrible motorcycle and then keep on going with it and slowly fix it. Yeah, so the sex appeal is gone at this point. And there are a handful of people that I've seen that own them and ride them and enjoy them and want to talk about them. But you go to a bike night and somebody shows up on a Zero, nobody notices it. Somebody shows up on an Alta. Every time I've showed up on my Alta to a bike night, everybody's like, holy shit, it's an Alta. I think the difference there is is first impressions. Mm-hmm. And you really can't undervalue first impressions. And, nope. that's, and that's something I think that you either get or you don't. And I think out of the gate, Alta was really good about making a good first impression. And I don't think Zero got that. Zero's first impression out of the gate was fucking shit show. And it's hard to overcome that that bad rap. And like even someone like me that's trying to be objective and, and critique these bikes in a way that's meaningful for readers, it's hard for me to overlook the fact like, yeah, this is the same company that was basically making bicycles and calling them motorcycles. Yeah. Which is funny now because like, I do think that is kind of a niche in the space now that maybe zero was too early for. We have this like <laughs> bicycle motorcycle hybrid under 500 CC electric thing. moped uh, cake. The Scandinavian company is making an interesting product in the space. Um, Harley Davidson today was showing us the right. concept for right. what I call it's moped, which is kind of the same thing. Kajiva uh, is talking about doing something similar. So in a way, like I kind of chuckle because I'm like, oh, you know, timing is is a big thing in business. And sure maybe is. Zero was a little early with some of these early ideas that they had. But the, the, the taste is still sour there. And the issue I have is when you go and look at the SEC filings for funding for Zero, you can see that their um, Zero is basically funded by a company called Invis, which is a private equity firm out of Europe that manages the wealth of um, fairly prominent Luxembourg families. Hmm. That's that's their core right there. And Invis is a really interesting company. They make long plays, long play move investments. So you know, they look at zero as in like, hey, we know electrics are coming. We want to be a part of it. This is going to be huge one day. We are really committed to zero, making zero work. And they've been funding the shit out of them for the last, let's say, 10 years or so. And you look at the the rate. I mean, it's like it's like like an allowance. It's like a dad giving out money to a kid, right? Every couple of months, We're like, okay, here's your next, you know, couple million dollars. Here's your next Just couple million to make dollars. Sure you're covered every year. That has to end eventually, <laughs> right? And I hear some chatter that that there are some hard, you know, like you need to meet these goals kind of things. Otherwise, dad's going to close the wallet when it comes to zero. And you know, you look at it, like zero is not at the point where they can be profitable on their own. There's just no way you look at how many employees they have, how much, you know, overhead they have and you know, they do all their manufacturing in California and all these other things. And, the, and then you look at the volume of the motorcycles that they're selling. There's just no way they're profitable. No, and the profitability is pretty far out. So I sit there and I go just like, eventually Invis is going to be like, okay, we are just chasing good, you know, good money with bad or bad money with good. We got to stop. Do we know how they're doing in the European market? Almost non-existent. Oh, geez. I mean, like, I wouldn't say they're not doing sales in Europe, but I mean, they're, they're bread and butters in the US. And they wasted a lot of time with kind of crazy sales um, structure, crazy support structure. You know, 
they got kind of caught up with that. Like let's reinvent the wheel in terms of how we buy and sell motorcycles and service them, which isn't necessarily a bad idea, but it was a very expensive I, they, they wasted a lot of money chasing that, I'm, that I'm, rabbit hole. I gotta tell you, I'm a little bit surprised that they're non-existent in Europe because if you look at anything in Europe, you know, everybody's basically pointing to 2021, 2022 being, you know, that point where every manufacturer has to have an electric vehicle present on the lots. And, and they, so, you know, why would you not want to be a part of that if you're if you're zero and and there's probably a real chance of selling units because motorcycle motorcycles aren't just toys over there. They're actual pieces of uh, machinery that people use to get around every day to work and whatnot. I haven't seen the breakdown on sales between Europe and the U.S. And it's not fair to say that they don't have a European presence. But at the end of the day, they're a smallish American company. Where do you think they're going to put their efforts in? Of the, course, the American market. market's still underserved. It's still underdeveloped. Right. So are you really going to try and like make this effort to like go across the Atlantic Ocean and service another market on the other side of the world when you haven't really even like figured it out in your own backyard. I mean, that's, I don't fault them for that for too much. I think you're right. I think the European market makes a little bit more sense, but I'm not going to fault them for it. I don't think that's necessarily a misstep. Yeah. I guess that's that. just the reality of like, Hey, we were founded in California. We weren't founded in, you know, Geneva. <laughs> um, but I'm very surprised for me. For me, this news is like, hey, we're coming out with something that's just like the thing we had before. <laughs> it's better than the thing you had before. It's the next step. It's the next evolution. Right. But like you're still giving me like that same. Like, make some noise, man. It's like it's like Shaheen. If you told me you didn't like sushi and and you learned that because I was giving you California rolls. Right. And then I was like, oh, well, you don't like California rolls and you're telling me you don't like sushi. Well, you know what? Try this maki. <laughs> try this Try this octopus. Try this, you know, whatever. This, right. I've seared this, it this somewhat. This toro or this, you know, like the the fancy roll. And you're like sitting there going, like, no, 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 you don't get it. It's not that I, I want a fancier sushi. I just don't want sushi. This is sushi to me. This is the same fucking thing. Give uh, me, give me, give me like a, I don't know. Chick-fil-A or something like you got to spice it up. Give me something different. Give me a fried chicken tender from Deluxe, man. How do I go from sushi to Chick-fil-A? I don't know. I don't know where you, I, I, it's because you were a, sick. Give I, me a, yeah, give me, <laughs> give me a steak. I don't want sushi. Steak. I want my, give me my like, my give Kobe beef. Cow meat. Yeah, give me something tasty, some cow beef in my mouth. Um, I need to clarify something. I love sushi, so don't believe him. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> I don't know why my brain went there. <laughs> but it, it, that's, that's the thing there where like if I was a betting man, I give him less than a year because it's like and and then contrast this with Harley Davidson, which we'll talk about next. We sit there and it's like, guys, you have a 10 year history of a 13 year history, however you want to define it, of making product like this. Right. And where is it taking you? What What results has it shown you? So why do you think continuing that is going to change it? You put in X, you get Y. Stop putting in X thinking you're going to get Z. Like, it's the definition of insanity. I was about to say, what is the definition of insanity? Um, so, I don't know. I, I keep expecting good things from them. I keep ex- expecting to get wowed and surprised because I really feel like that's what it's going to take for them to survive. And if I was in this and I was sitting there going like, okay, why am I still like paying you guys millions of dollars every you know couple months? That's what I would expect. I would like, show me something. Show me that like there is hope that I'm going to get some return on these 
hundreds of millions of dollars that I've invested in your company. Maybe this is it then. Maybe this is the the big reveal in in end of you know late February. Maybe they're going to do some crazy fireworks. I don't know. They don't have like carbon fiber wheels and. I keep I keep hoping. I I really want to give them the benefit of the doubt. I really really want to do that, and I am always disappointed. It'll be the first electric bike to hit 200 miles an hour. I don't care. If it looks like this, I don't care. <laughs> It'll. If it's the same garbage that they've been putting out, I don't care. Because that's the thing. Like, I bet it's a great bike. I bet it I bet it does all the things quite well. You know, but I have no emotional connection to no. it. And if I'm going to pay a premium, let's say if I'm going to pay $20,000 for a bike like that, think about the bikes that cost $20,000. Exactly. Think about, and why do you buy them? You know? Yeah, because they, they move you in the heart. You know, I didn't buy, I mean, like, I think the Kramer's are a good example. I didn't buy a Kramer because I thought it was the best dollars, you know, bang for the buck to go racing. If that was the case. Buy an SV650. I, just, I would buy an R3 <laughs> for like $2,000 right. off Craigslist and I'd make a cripple triple out of right. it and I'd go and I'd be saving like $10,000 in the process. But the bike's interesting to me. It, it, it invokes an emotion. I like the story. I like its uniqueness. I like what the company's trying to do. I'm intrigued. You know, I saw I saw a bunch of them on the racetrack and I was intrigued and I want to be a part of that. And it's the same thing. Like if I'm going to go down and spend $20,000 on a Panigale V4 or a uh, uh, BMW GS Adventure or... Or a Zero. Well, I wasn't even going to throw a Zero there because I'm, I'm thinking of those bikes <laughs> because like those are bikes them. that are like speaking to me like, oh yeah, Panigale V4, that's cool. It's a V4 Ducati. BMW GS, oh, that's the that's the thing that Ewan McGregor went around the world on, or a KTM twelve ninety. That's such a fucking bitchin' bike, and oh, you know, like I love that their history is in the Dakar or, right. or whatever it is. Like, if you're spending that much coin, it's not a dollars and cents proposition; it's an emotional proposition. And I think that's my biggest problem with Zero is they have zero fucking emotion. Maybe that's the name. The worst fucking name. <laughs> the worst fucking name. Hey, what bike do you ride? A zero. A zero. How fast does it go? Zero. You know, fast enough. That's the thing. They 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 wanted to make a, a what's the word I'm looking for here? Like a rational motorcycle is I think what they were it trying is. to build. It's, and and there's nothing rational about motorcycles. There shouldn't be. It's it's a motorcycle. This is this is this is horrible, and I apologize in advance for the zero employees that are responsible for this. But it's in a it's a motorcycle that feels like it was built and designed by soulless engineers. Where it's just like, how can we make the most um, effective and efficient machine for the criteria that is set out in front of us? And you're like, okay, fantastic. Fantastic engineering exercise, and you're probably achieving that. But in the process of it, you were losing all the soul. You need someone to come in and, and, and like, you need like, like the reverend of soul to come in and jive up your shit. Somebody call George Clinton right now. Yeah. Yeah. You know, get just some funk going. Get some funk in there. Like, I don't know. Whoever's whoever's designing this it's stuff. It's basically, and it makes me cringe to say it, they've ultimately built like the Prius of motorcycles. And it's got about as much sex appeal as one. It doesn't mean it's a bad motorcycle. It just doesn't make us excited to talk about it. That being said, I'm looking at one of their ads right now. It's kind of excited looking. Yeah, someone in the graphic design part. Yeah, effortless adventure. Good job, whoever made this one. High yeah, five to you. There's someone in the marketing part that obviously has a pulse. Yeah, but there's someone in the product development department that needs to be taken outside and, and shown the long way down the pier. Maybe they were ex employees of Pontiac and they built the Aztec. Oh, that could be. Shit happens, you know. Sometimes engineers you know, design like, vehicles, and that's not how it should be. 
Designer should design. Aztec really was like one of the worst cars ever made. <laughs> Walter White drove one. I just don't like at least like the zero. I can see like I can see that boardroom pitch. I can see that like committee. We're like, all right, guys, yeah, we did a good job here. The Pontiac Aztec. I do not know how that got out of the boardroom. Like everyone looked down like, yeah, absolutely. We should absolutely build <laughs> Who this. greenlit that fucking thing. We should. This is a great job. Congratulations. I'll, I remember when it came out, I was just a teenager and I just as a teenager looked at it and went, what? Who? Why? Like, that's the car you're going to hand. It's going to be a hand me down to like three generations later. And it's ultimately what it's become. I think it's going to be like the Ford Pinto. You like, think it'll be a classic someday? Another, yeah, another 10 years from now, that's going to be like the cool, like <laughs> ironic thing to drive. Like, Is oh, the Ford Pinto cool yet? Did you see Shahidi rolled up in an Aztec? And they made oh, it in gold. They even made it in gold, and it was so fugly. <laughs> it's poop brown. Look at it. <laughs> it's a poop brown Aztec. And they named it Aztec. What a terrible name. Like, you go to the Aztecs, and it's gorgeous, and it's breathtaking. And you look at that car and go, nope. It should have just been called a boo. Because it's cursed, Shahidi. That's why. <laughs> it's got like the curse of the Aztecs on it. Ah, oh, dang it. Um, so we'll see. I, I am not expecting good things from the Zero SRF. I think it'll be a perfectly fine motorcycle in the same way that I was trying to think of a bike that was like perfectly fine, but soulless. The Honda NC700, I think that's what it was called. Those, the 700s were pretty soulless. Right. It was, it was built to be a commuter. That's all it was. And even if you spoke to Honda about it, they're like, yeah, it's boring. We made it just so you can commute to places and get great gas mileage. The F800 series from BMW, pretty soulless. Ugh. Although There's, the 850 is pretty cool. 850 is supposed to be quite good. Yep. They definitely they definitely fixed some things. Um, so yeah, we'll see. I mean, I hope they get their stuff together. I would hate for this for them to go out of business. I don't want that. Um, I want to see an electric manufacturer. If they go out of business, I don't know what happens with the electric space. Hey, that's the thing. I don't want them to go out of business. I want the electric space to grow. And it shouldn't only be Harley doing it. And I'm sure other manufacturers will probably get on. They're just waiting for somebody to do the right thing, right? Um, but let's segue to the big HD. The big HD. This is the big news that came out literally just hours ago. So it's kind of fortuitous that you and I were uh, under the weather and we had to delay our recording. Um, it's a two-part two part news. The Harley-Davidson Livewire priced at 29800 uh, we got some details on its on its specs. So zero to sixty in three point five seconds. They're quoting at least a hundred. Might be the fastest Harley right now. <laughs> oh yeah, probably right. Um, in town mileage is supposed to be at one hundred and ten miles plus. Uh, what does that mean if you keep it under like thirty five miles an hour? Well, the way they rate the the mileage on electrics is they do like um, like an urban city range and a highway range mm-hmm. and electrics are kind of like the inverse of gas where like when you're in the city you actually get much better range than you would on the highway right so 110 miles in town is it's okay-ish that's Stop and go that makes me feel like maybe it's a i don't know 15 kilowatt hour pack maybe hmm. i don't know maybe maybe 10 I don't know, it's gonna be a heavy bike, so I bet it's I bet it's a little bit more. Yeah, it looks, it looks, range it looks is, pretty mighty. Yeah, freeway range is probably gonna be like half that. Freeway range is probably gonna be like fifty miles, sixty miles, which is not great. Um, it's gonna have traction control. It's gonna have ABS, uh, quartering ABS, IMU powered traction control. So that's cool. Okay. Um, we don't have too many more details, but we do know that it'll be out in fall for the United States. It'll come out later for select markets globally. This is a global bike. I think it's just going to take a little while for them to get it out everywhere. I would expect to see it in Europe. 
uh, pretty quick, probably in the winter. They'll probably have it at ICMA and then have it available uh, in Europe in the winter or early 2020. And then it'll kind of, I would imagine, China, Japan, Australia from there kind of thing. It is a handsome bike. It looks good in the orange, it's, doesn't it? it really, I, I enjoy the orange. I was wondering if they're going to stick to their guns and do the black thing that they've been showing all along. And it looked pretty murdered out and all black, but this orange is kind of... My understanding it will be two colors. will be the orange and the black. So I think I think we pick good colors. It's not my favorite looking motorcycle, but I don't hate it. I'd be very curious to ride it. Um, it's intriguing. It's very intriguing. I think I think there's a good chance we'll get a, a leg over that one this year, Shaheen. Yeah, I'm pretty excited to ride it. I, I got to see the the uh, original Project Livewire at Sturgis 2014. Oh yeah, what'd you think? They had one there, and they they were letting people sit on it and kind of squeeze the throttle and hear it. And it's funny, they talk about the noise. You know, they, they want to kind of have like this Harley Davidson sound to it, which is not at all the sound you expect from a Harley Davidson, but it, it does have a lot of whining and and kind of gearing sounds. Yes. They cut the teeth on the gears specifically to generate a certain sound. And it's there. Uh, at least on that iteration for, yes. you know, five years ago it was there. Uh it's much smaller in person, at least that version that I saw. It's it's a little it seems like a more compact version of a sportster 883 but it's taller you know it kind of has a like a standard think of it as a ducati monster like 821 it's about the same size at least the one that i saw there so it's not very big i can't imagine why it's going to be so heavy it's probably the battery packs i imagine yeah i think the bulk of that machine is going to be battery pack the the concept that you sat on interestingly enough was co-developed with mission motors Mm. They're responsible for a lot of the drivetrain there. I don't know who Harley Davidson is partnering with for the live wire now. Um, I should probably dig that up. That's probably a good story. Um, it's interesting that they're talking about, you know, wanting to be, you know, including everybody in, in this whole next project that they're working on. And the first thing they put out is a nearly $30,000 motorcycle. Well, <laughs> you're right. You're right, but you're but you're also wrong because the other part of the story is, and this is what I think really interesting, they showed two of their concepts. So, uh, what was it, six, nine months ago, Harley-Davidson kind of revealed their all roads lead to Harley That's right. business plan. And with that, they showed a number of concept sketches for, for an electric lineup that goes all the way from a pedal-assist bicycle to kind of an electric moped yeah. to kind of a small displacement motorcycle up to a full-size motorcycle, which was the live wire. And there was a scooter in there as well. Right. So now we're seeing those sketches come to life and we've got the scooter and the moped model pretty much in the flesh. And I think that's interesting because those are the, the kind of urban mobility consumer new age of transportation yeah. machines. Yep. And I think that's really an important juxtaposition to the ultra expensive $30,000 live wire. And I think that shows like Harley's electric plan isn't just to have a $30,000 cruiser. They're going to have price points all the way down from $30,000, probably close to, I don't know, four or five. So in essence, they're doing what we were saying Zero should have done from the beginning, right? They're doing something big and flashy and expensive. Good first impression. Right. First impression. It's sexy. You want to go check this thing out, but yeah. they're going to have a moped. This is where they're going to have their volume. Because you look at, I mean, the moped's interesting, especially since it looks very off-roady. Yeah. So that helps kind of get Harley Davidson's toe in the water in terms of going off-road. 
I'm really intrigued by this scooter. I think this scooter, this could be the new Super Cub. This could be the new, I mean, it looks like our Honda Ruckus, but it I does. feel like it's it's our generations or it's the 21st century's version of this Honda Super Cub because it's big, it's utilitarian. You could probably fit one or two people on it. It's got ape hangers. You could, you yeah, it's got kind of an ape <laughs> hanger. It's got a lot of storage potential. It's got running boards. You know, this this works just as easily in the U.S. market as it does in the Southeast Asian markets. Right. Um, you're going to be able to sell that all over the world for a fairly affordable price. You probably don't need to have the latest, greatest battery technology. Um, so you can pick something that's fairly affordable. I bet they can get this under four or $5,000 easily. Yeah. And that's an intriguing that. proposition, right? It, it really is. And it's, I mean, it, I realize that it's just a concept design that they're letting us see here, but I kind of like it. it. It's wacky and it's, you know, I like that. I like that it's sort of a conversation starter. Yeah, we'll see what it looks like when when it gets closer to production. I mean, it's a hardtail right now, which is ridiculous. <laughs> um, that headlight, there's just that's just never going to pass DOT. No, that's just like a LED ring that'll you know. I feel like they took it off of a camera lens. Yeah, so there's some intrigue there. I, the moped's interesting to me. That that's going to open up some ideas. You know, like going out into the wilderness on trail riding and stuff. And yeah, it's going to bridge a gap between bicycles and motorcycles. And um, you know, we'll kind of see they've. I think the the styling's very interesting with the way the tail kind of looks like a flat track bike. I don't know if I love it. But, you know, again, uh, like I said last time we were talking about this, I, I love that they're doing something completely off kilt from what they're typically known for doing, right? And so they've, they've, you can see they've brought in some fresh designers who are looking at it with new eyes and they're making something weird and cool looking. Well, and I think it's going to be polarizing. That's what I'm excited about. There's going to be people who are going to love this and there's going to be people who are going to smack talk about it nonstop. But that's what you want. You the Harley's doing the right thing. They're creating a conversation. Whether good or bad doesn't matter. Well, here's the thing that I like the most about it. And this is where I think Zero could take a page from it. Harley Davidson is making a bold move. Yep. They're saying, because this is just one component. They're also doing a whole new push with their gas bikes. They got They teased us with an adventure model. They teased right. us with a Street Fighter model. I mean, those are two serious segments. If you're going to come in and, and be an adventure bike, you're going after the GS, you're going after the KTMs, you're <laughs> yeah. going after the Ducati Enduro. You know, these are these are bikes that the market is very brutal towards. So Harley Davidson's signaling that it wants to go into that space, wanting to go into the the Street Fighter space, which is another one that's like hyper competitive. Right. That's a big signal to me and they've got a whole um motor platform that they're going to build a boat ton of bikes they're not just going to make 180v bike and one street fighter bike they're going to make a whole range of other bikes so now we have this cruiser brand where cruisers are just one little segment and then you're going to have um you know another let's say umbrella of you know like a full house of bikes like kind of like how honda does and then you've got another one that's this whole range of electric bikes and that's harley davidson being like hey guess what we're fucking serious about this shit yeah we see that our baby boomers are dying we see that our market is going away we need to change something. Otherwise, we won't be around as a brand. So we're coming out strong. And they're doing it aggressively. And I think that's where Zero is making the misstep where it's like, how many more years are we giving Zero? I'm giving them less than one. Yeah, yeah. I think more reasonable estimations could be less than three, less than five. What What's going to be Zero's version of this where it's like, hey, here's, here's proof that we've got a pulse still. You know what's going to happen is Harley's going to create a market 
with you know with the things they're building and then all these other brands are going to start eating off the crumbs as you've seen them do with the the cruiser segments harley was and is the cruiser segment right and then everybody else has been building motorcycles that sort of mimic that style that sound that feel as best as they could for half the price maybe and so then you've got people that can't necessarily afford a harley or a new one anyways and going out buying a vtx or a royal star or whatever so realistically that's probably what's going to happen harley's the Har- harley's the big bad boy here and they've got all the money and all the funding and they're being super aggressive about the design and their marketing and then at some point in the next five years or so all these other brands and if zero you know survives crossing my fingers for them then they'll be able to eat off the crumbs of whatever harley's leaving behind for the companies i think that's the hope at harley my thought and this is what i wanted i wanted to know from you from your expertise being a harley did you own a harley davidson i did you worked at a harley davidson dealer sure did what do you feel the response is going to be from the harley davidson faithful on these electrics hilarious and, and what they're doing with the adventure and street fighter and those other bikes I think the the hardcore old school Harley riders are going to lose their shit because they did that in 2014, I think, when the the Project Rushmore came out, and was it 14 or 15? So when they came out with the new uh, uh, Harley cool. Davidson cruisers, yeah. and they changed everything around, these people freaked the hell out. And, and this they is were, over liquid cooling. Uh, liquid cooling and slight design change, where you know the bags had some curves to them, and the bikes had softened a little bit and looked more modern, as modern as a Harley Cruiser can look. And these people would, I mean, I literally heard people say things like, well, if I wanted to buy a Japanese bike, I'd buy a Honda. And it's like, what? A company that you love and have tattooed on your arm made a slight change and progressed, and you're freaking out about it. So I think the old school Harley faithful are going to lose their shit. But as we've discussed before and is apparent, those people are sort of literally and figuratively dying out. I would say the Harley faithful have already bought their last Harley. Right. And so what Harley's doing is a smart thing. They're, they're doing what, what I call and what we've always called in the business a conquest thing. They're, they're bringing in people that didn't maybe necessarily look at Harley Davidson as a choice, right? A, a young, hip person who's making decent money and is looking to spend money on a new toy might be looking at a Ducati, might be looking at a Kawasaki, might be looking at a Honda or a KTM. Harley was not in their radar. And even if they saw Harley, they just looked at it as, oh, yeah, I think my uncle used to ride or my grandfather rode or my dad rode. Um, whereas now it's like, no, it's it's going to be an option now because they're making neat, cool items that are going to probably cover every segment of the motorcycling industry in North America from a moped to an adventure bike to a cruiser. And so they're going to have, they're thinking big, right? They're trying to capture you from the moment you're ready to ride two wheels with a moped all the way to your last days of riding with a big cushion, you know, a giant cruiser, a, a, what are the, what are the couch ultra, with wheels, <laughs> yeah, ultra limited $40,000 cruiser. So, um, I think that the, the buyership, you know, that, that old conservative buyership will do what it's always done, which is freak out over anything new. And they're going to bring in a lot of new buyers. Do you think, I'm trying to put my my personal hat on my my. I just turned 36. Never thought about owning a Harley Davidson in my life. Uh, a couple models have intrigued me, but at the end of the day, this isn't my brand. Right? Do you think they can win over the hearts and minds of people like me? I think so. I think I think 
I think in every group, there's going to be what I call an intellectual. An intellectual isn't someone that knows how to read and, you know, take in information. An intellectual to me is someone that wants to know more and wants to, you know, be proven wrong necessarily about something. They, they don't mind changing their mind. So I think an intellectual buyer like you will look at something like that and go, hmm, that's interesting. I'm going to at least go check it out. You're not just going to wave it off as a Harley being, ugh, I'm not old enough to ride a Harley yet, which is where I'm sort of at. Even when I bought my Harley, it only lasted a couple of weeks in my garage because I just wasn't there yet. Uh, and, and as much love as I have for them for being beautiful machines, they just, they don't meet my expectations as a rider and what I want to do on a motorcycle. That doesn't mean I don't like them. It just means I don't want to spend my money on them. So I think by creating this, these new segments and, you know, getting exciting for different eyes and different minds and hearts and souls. Yes. I think riders like you and I are going to start looking at them and saying, okay, that's interesting. Now there are another option. That's another option on the table. So when you're ready to buy your, you know, cool Street Fighter type motorcycle, you might consider a Harley Street Fighter that's coming up that they teased us with a couple of months ago. So, yeah, I'm, I, and I'm I'm the eternal optimist. I'm I'm hoping that that's what'll happen. Yeah, the the Street Fighter model is probably the one I have the hardest time with because I'm a Street Fighter guy. Right. If you had to boil me down to like one motorcycle, it's going to be a Street Fighter. Yep, I'm with my, you. My sweet spot is I, I mean I own a Street Fighter 1098. I love the KTM Super Duke. I love the Aprilia Tuono. Uh, I want I want a big burly. I'm a hooligan Street Fighter bike in my garage. Oh yeah. So when I look at that Harley Davidson one, I kind of go like, "Do you guys, do you guys know what this? Did you, <laughs> did you maybe did you see what else is in the market? And this, you're gonna like you're bringing you're bringing like a what's the what's the engine size supposed to be on that thing? It's nine hundred ish. 900 ish. So like you're bringing like cooking tongs to a knife fight. Like right, I just right. don't know what the fuck you're doing. No. And, and I'm like you, I think the street fighter segment is, is my, it's a, it's not quite my second. It's almost like my tie for first place. Cause I love big adventure bikes also, but I think a street fighter should be exactly that. It's supposed to be just this angry fire breathing motherfucker of a motorcycle. And that's what you have in the garage. And that's yeah. what I think of when I think of a, of a street fighter. I want it to be a little unforgiving. I want it to be a little bit edgy and a little bit scary to throw your leg over every time you go ride it. Yeah. But that's the point of it. It's called a street fighter, not a street cuddler. Well, yeah. And it's supposed to be a stripped down super bike without fairings and all these things. Like, you know, there's kind of like the classic style of it. And I just, I just, I don't know. I just don't feel like there's an authentic play there for Harley Davidson. Now the, the ADV bike, I have a little bit easier time swallowing. Harley's got a history in touring. ADV bikes don't necessarily go off road. So, right. okay. Uh, I look at it and it looks very utilitarian. I mean, we'll wait and see what the specs look like. <laughs> It'll be big and heavy, I, at least according to the pictures. Yeah, but what ADV bike isn't big exactly. and heavy? They're all big and heavy. So, like, I'm giving it a little bit more space for, for things to happen. But I don't know. I think, I think Harley's biggest challenge is to be authentic yep and to authentically create a message or a connection with these riders that truthfully it's shunned for its entire existence yeah harley davidson has never tried to get someone like me in its business no harley's motto should have been fuck you or harley right and they always did. They kind of just built the things that they were going to build. Not just and fuck you, Harley. She'd been like, fuck you, Jensen. We're Harley. Because <laughs> it's like they they literally did not want someone like me. And it's funny that like I've been doing this for 10 years. Never really had contact with Harley until like the last few months. Right. And you're like, yeah, 
Exactly. Now you want me on your bikes. Now you well, because want now me they're trying to appeal to, to a younger, customer. younger ridership, and that's right. who you appear appeal to. Well, just just in general, like me as a rider, it was just like, oh yeah, we're not looking for the the old cruiser type guy. We were looking for some sportier, younger people. We're looking for millennials. We're looking for Gen Xers. We're looking for people that go off road and do ADV and ride sport bikes. And it's like, okay, guys, but yeah, for the last for as long as I've been a motorcyclist. You've been giving me the middle finger. Yeah. So now you want to be friends? I don't know. I, there's been a lot of other brands that have been like way more and engaging feels- that want to be friends. That have been wanting to be friends with me for a lot longer right, of a time. Right. You know, like Triumph is out there like, hey, we got a speed triple. You like speed triples? We got Tigers. <laughs> you like Tigers? You know, Ducati's got like a whole little lineup that's just kind of like a so- little gu- goody goody gumdrops. And Honda's got bikes and Yamaha's got bikes and Kawasaki's got bikes. Fucking even Eric Beal was making bikes that were released in my wheelhouse. Yeah. wasn't very interested in them, but you know, at least he's there talking the same language as me. So do you think they're being disingenuous with this with this approach now with you and everybody else? I, I mean, you're not the only person in my feed that talks like this about Harley for a good reason. I, I'm an open-minded individual. I, I, I could be intrigued. You know, you put out a good bike. A good bike's a good bike. Right. But I don't have any connection with this brand. In fact, I have a I I've been off put by this brand because I consider myself a very patriotic person and I don't like it when companies use America as a marketing slogan. And for a long time Harley's whole shtick was you should buy it because it's American. And this is this is freedom on two wheels yeah. and all these kind of like kind of bogus marketing claims from just like, you know what, guys? I get that for some people. That's how like they define freedom. And that's how they define America and Americana and patriotism and all that stuff. But that's not my brand of patriotism. And so you offended me by it. So there's a lot of like relationship building to be like, okay, like how are you going to get me to tattoo Harley Davidson's logo on, on my body? They're not gonna, I, I mean, that's, I think that's a really huge, challenge and i think, I think that's gonna be the challenge. challenge for the brand on top of all the like creating an intriguing product that that is resonating and does the things correctly and you know makes me want to have it in, in the garage it'll be interesting to watch them kind of wrestle with that because for the longest time they've had such a huge success with the buyership that they've had that they've probably always thought oh we can just rest on those laurels we don't have to bring in the jensen beelers of the industry no, they didn't it doesn't me, matter right, right? Your, your your view to them is is non-existent because they're selling lots of bikes without you having to care about them and so yeah i wonder i wonder how this is going to go because you know the the people that they're trying to attract to their brand now are of your mindset probably yeah you gotta start speaking my language yeah and they're try- <laughs> it's funny they're kind of trying to but it doesn't seem genuine because you know they've hired these sort of models slash influencers to like take pictures and go to shows and this and that and it's like all right bro we can read right through you <laughs> that's the hardest part that's gonna be i think the biggest challenge for harley davidson is to be authentic to make a genuine connection yeah. and that's that's one of the things we're like we go back to i think we had this conversation about ducati and buying like uh tm racing or a dirt bike brand right it would feel so inauthentic for for me to see Ducati building um, a 450cc motocross bike. You know, we see this rumor going around. You, yeah. you turn me on to this yep, rumor. Yep. Um, that just feels so inauthentic. It's like that you just can't take the Ducati brand there. Now, Ducati Motor Holding could buy a dirt bike brand or create a dirt bike brand. 
that could then go do that. We see that with MV. They took Kajiva, a company that has a lot of history in, in the Dakar. Right. And saying like, okay, yeah, this is going to be our new electric brand. This is going to be our new off-road brand. MV Augusta will still be our on-road sport bike brands and we'll have Kajiva right next to it. And that makes sense. Like I, That's what I feel like Harley Davidson should be doing in a way. Instead of doing this branded house strategy, do this house of brands where it's like, yeah, maybe you should have bought Alta and, and made that your electric brand or your dirt bike brand or whatever it is. Maybe you should have kept Buell around or kept MV or, or, or found some other brand that you could bring under the umbrella to like, yeah, Harley Davidson can be Harley Davidson and the Harley Davidson tattooed faithful can have their brand until, until they die. But we'll reach the Jensen Beelers and the Shaheens in the world by having these other brands that we own that can have an authentic message with them. That's a, you bring up a very, very interesting point. When when I worked at the Harley dealership, we used to have the the EBR bikes there, the Eric right. Buell racing bikes. And they, they failed miserably. Nobody, nobody that walked into a Harley shop was there to look at an EBR. They were there to look at street glides and road glides and, you know, sportsters and whatnot. So we used to wonder what if these EBRs had a Harley Davidson tag on them, right? What if huh. what if instead of EBR in the tank it had the bar and shield? Yeah. Would it have done better? That was the you know that was the eternal question. So if Harley was to let's say bring in a sub brand and sell it as a different brand under a different dealership, I have a distinct feeling it would fail. Because you're trying to come up with something brand new uh and and make it stick. Now that's probably an unfair thing to say because we've seen, you know, in the, in the car world at least, you know, these brands have sub brands that do well. You know, you got Toyota and Lexus, you got Nissan and Infiniti, and so on and so forth. And those were all created, you know, in the '80s and '90s, and they they somehow survived and they did well. And some companies that tried to do that failed. But um, I don't know if I don't think the motorcycling industry, the retail side, is quite big enough to be able to handle Harley making a different brand to sell it under a different store. It's like when Ducati came out with the Scrambler. It's, you know, it's Scrambler by Ducati, but they couldn't sell it at a Scrambler by Ducati only store. They made these, all the Ducati dealerships have a land of joy where the bike sat at. Yeah. So you could still say, oh yeah, it's still a Ducati. I'm still getting service by Ducati. I'm still having the Ducati experience when I buy the Scrambler by Ducati. It's it's a weird segment in the motorcycling world. So I agree with you. I think that, yeah, if it was a different brand and it sort of spoke a different brand language, it would probably, in theory at least, bring the likes of you and I into it with a little more interested and maybe more unbiased opinion. But I think it would fail. I think it would fail miserably. Well, let's 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 go down this this thought pattern a little bit. So let's say EBR had the Harley Davidson logo on it instead. Right. Taking aside the product issues, because I think there was. I think EBR's biggest undoing was that the product wasn't good compared to everything else that was on the market. The, oh, product, yeah. the product was lacking. But what does adding the Harley Davidson logo do that helps capture me as a customer? Does nope. it, is it, is, is it the connection to Sturgis? Is it the Americanness? Is it the, the cruiser history? I mean, like what, what does having the Harley Davidson brand behind it do that's going to help it? I think it's just a comforting feeling of knowing a familiar brand. I think it's just as simple as that. But even I mean, if it's you, a brand sort of that I've rejected, it. though, uh, yeah, because 
then they're just saying, oh, we're going to sell Harleys and there's going to be some Harley, a younger Harley buyer who can buy a sport bike from us. That's a genuine. You're right. The EBR bikes, the, what are they, the 11? 1190 RX. 1190 RX and RS and RSX. The RS was the carbon fiber one. The RX was the everyday persons. And they were gonna, the SX was the Street Fighter. And the right. AX never came out, which was right. the adventure bike. So th- those bikes, uh, did you ever ride one? Yeah. I rode one too. It, it was a brutally powerful bike for what it was. It had a lot of oomph. It had a, you know, you could power wheelie it, you know, coming out of a corner. If it came out in 2001, that would have been a great bike. Totally right. Or at least a, a good bike. I mean, if you looked at it, the fit and finish sucked. There was, you know, you looked, I remember looking at the windshield of, of a bike, you know, head on and you could see like guts of electronics hanging out. Like, guys, why is this unfinished? Why is a, a $19,000 bike unfinished like this? That was a thing. That right? was, when it came out, it was the same price as a Panigale and you're like, I know which one I'm buying. Yeah, totally. If it was priced 13000 15000 against like a Japanese which bike. Which is what they ended up doing right before they yeah. <laughs> business. And that was the thing. It's like, that's, that's more or less what it was worth. Now they had to price it higher because that's that's what they needed to price them out to make money, or perceptively. But well, I mean, it's funny. I think I think Buell was also trying to hope to bring in like its original Buell buyers. You know, remember the the S one Lightnings and yeah, you know the really cool looking bikes which had just shit for motors on them, but they looked cool. They had cool frames and they had super short wheelbases and they would wheelie everywhere and they were hooligans. They were just street fighters. Uh, which made sense, right? To have a bike that's bare bones to be a street fighter, cool, I get it. But if you're trying to compete with the likes of a Panigale and you're like, you know, nine years behind, ugh. there's, I mean, there's a lot of reasons EBR failed, but. But anyways, if it had the Harley branding on, and that was a question we, we didn't know, we don't have that magic eight ball to be able to answer these questions, but we always used to ask the question like, man, if this said Harley on there, because it's funny, they always had the American flag on the tails. It was almost like EBR was trying to kind of do the Harley thing of saying, it's made in America. Oh, absolutely. Buy it to be a patriot. That, that was the only thing that EBR could sell on was American sport bike. Yep. Because it's not it's not the fastest. It's not the most powerful. It's not the lightest. It's not the most high-tech. It's not the most well-built. But it's got the right passport. Yeah. Like, and that, for me, that offends me. I'm offended by that. <laughs> Why don't I you want go the, eat your avocado toast? I want, I want it to be like, offended. oh, it's the most powerful. It's the most affordable. It's the most high tech. It's the most highest horsepower. It's got the best torque. And by the way, it's American. Yeah, fuck yeah, because yeah, America yeah. does it number one. Yeah. And that's that why be, I get offended. And that would be awesome. That that and that's what so that's my hope, right? That's that's where I'm crossing my fingers. All right. Cool, Harley. Come up with these cool stuff and make them really, really high tech and really, really awesome. So let's play, let's play the inverse of this game. Okay. You've got your Alta. Let's say Harley Davidson buys Alta and they put a Harley Davidson sticker on it. Does that make that bike more valuable to you? Are you more likely to buy that Alta again because it has a Harley Davidson sticker on it? Not to me, no, because I'm not I'm I'm not married to any brands. I didn't buy Alta because it was an Alta. I bought Alta because it was a cool alternative. Okay. Um and and frankly, if it was under the zero name, I would still have looked at it if it was that cool. Okay. Um so that that's I think that's one of the difference with me. I, I'm never married to a brand, even though I've probably owned more Ducatis than any other brand motorcycle. I'm not married to that brand. If tomorrow KTM comes what, out, what shirt are you wearing right now? By the way, I know, dude, it says Ducati on there. <laughs> <laughs> but you uh, are the new the new president. Aren't I you? am the new. Uh, I just got voted in the new president of the Ducati Pacifica chapter of the DOC, the Desmo Owners Club. Okay, congratulations, thanks, to you, man. Sir. Yeah, I don't know what it means. Um, well, obviously the power is going to go straight to your head and we'll, we'll have a coup at some point. 
<laughs> uh, I need a big ring, like a big gold ring with a Ducati Dion. Oh, <gasps> I am so going to make that. Holy shit, it's happening. <laughs> oh, damn it. I don't know. Never uh, vote me in as president of anything. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, I'll be revoking my membership very shortly. I don't know. I'm, I'm still playing around with this idea with the with the brand. I, I'll be very curious. It's one of those things where I'm very bullish on Harley Davidson right, right now. I think the brand's doing some really interesting things. I'm intrigued. There's some bikes there that I'm kind of like, well, that's interesting. I could see one of those in my garage or tell me more. Or, okay, I want to see where this, my curiosity is peaked, sir. But I think it's going to be tough. I think it's going to be really, really tough. It's going to get worse before it gets better. Probably. It's going to have some failures. I, I bet they're going to come out with, let's say, a dozen models and half dozen of them fail. Yeah, I think that's fair. And Harley-Davidson, the timing might be right, and I think they're big enough and they've got enough free cash that they can probably weather the storm on having a couple missteps. Right. But uh, I, I would oh. wager to say that their electric lineup will do far better than that other liquid-cooled stuff they're coming out with. That liquid-cooled stuff, although neat and totally you know, out of their regular playhouse, I don't know that... I don't know that it's coming in at a time that is necessary, right? The adventure people already are buying adventure bikes. They've already bought them. The next level of motorcyclist is going to be that the people we talked about last time, the younger uh, or more, you know, uh, a different level of enthusiast. And I think that enthusiast is probably more interested in a high-tech electric vehicle than, you know, that's a, that's a really long lead time for customer acquisition. Oh, which is why they're coming that. out with all those different models, right? They got to, they got to try and kind of, make some money there still i'll be curious to see what the dealership the harley davidson dealership looks like after this is like five ten years down the road because I had one e- i think dealerships are totally up for grabs on, on what their future looks like anyways oh yeah but i feel like for such a huge sea change like this is for the brand for the right. harley davidson brand and it's gonna have to come with some changes at the dealership level and I'd be really curious to see what that looks like. It's you know that's <laughs> the the dealerships are owned privately, right? But ultimately, they're sort of governed by Harley and the Harley because regional managers. And almost all of them are single line dealers. All of them are, and they have. I mean, there's unless, a couple of them that unless aren't. it's like Burt's Mega Mall, where right. we've got every fucking. And bike. we have a dealer here that that does Harley and Triumph. Triumph, yes. And their Triumph side is almost like the side thought they're they kind of recognize that they need to have in the pacific northwest i was i was there recently and i almost didn't realize they were a triumph dealer because it was so separated and kind of sequestered away and it's in the same building and everything but But it's really gotta look for it yeah it's like harry potter living under the stairs (laughs) it's exactly like harry potter (laughs) living under the stairs so i I had an email uh we had an email rather uh from a gentleman who who was telling us that they were listening to the last uh, podcast where I talked about how Harley should make sort of a charging station in every dealership. Yes, great idea. And so they wrote back on that one. Uh, and they said that, let's see here, they want the dealers, they being Harley, want the dealers themselves to pay for the charge stations in advance of the live wire coming out. Okay. So that's not cheap. No. That's going to be super that's like expensive. four or $5,000. Right. So m- my thought here would be, you know, at least co-op that money, right? If it's going to be twenty, thirty thousand dollars to put a charging station, that then your Livewire customer can come in, plug it in, and have a chance to buy some bullshit from your dealership. 
Harley should be smart and say, hey, we'll put in half that money with you. No, I'll do you one better. Oh, go ahead. Harley should be smart and pay for the whole fucking thing, and they say they own it. Because would then be the thing. Harley Davidson can have their own, kind of like what Tesla's doing. Right. We own the charging network. Yep. Yeah, it's on your location. You get the privilege of having someone have to stop and top up their bikes, electric, whatever's. Well, and then they'll mill around your store and shop. Yep. But we own that station. We get to do whatever we want with it. We'll pay for it and all that jazz. Yep. That's the smarter play. And that, that that would be a brilliant play because anytime somebody goes into a Harley dealership, they buy something. The joke with HD is that it stands for $100. That's the minimum you spend anytime you walk into that shop. Yeah. So how stupid are you if you don't put one of these charging stations in every dealership? Every single... And they're all big mega dealerships. I've, I've Like the small mom and pop shop uh, shop owned uh, Harley shops are gone. They're all of these big, beautiful shops that are multi million dollars. So, dude, invest the money. They're going to come. You're trying to sell this thing. Complete the cycle. Don't just build the bike and go, good luck. I mean, to be fair, there is something kind of funny to me about like a dealership being like, oh, I don't want to pay for this. You know, let's say it's $5,000, right. which is about, about what it would be. I don't want to pay for this $5,000 charging point. And you're like, well, if it means you get to sell like one or two of those $30,000 bikes, right. And you're going to have that that stop point i mean like i feel like the business mind to me is like that's going to pay for itself pretty quickly bud don't don't put up too much of a fight but i do think it's smarter for harley davidson to pick up the full freight and just own it outright this is why i came up with the idea of the co-op both of them going on it both of them are now invested on it yeah and, and it's you know having worked with ducati for the last four years co-op is a big thing you know if you want your dealership to do the thing to look like every dealership across the world then you have to incentivize them. It's either going to be by saying, we're going to give you a bonus at the end of the year by doing mm. this, or we're going to pay for half of it so that you're not having to foot the entire bill. Because frankly, one of the biggest faults of every dealership out there is short-sightedness. Yeah. There's a, one of the maxims in kind of like business management is what gets rewarded gets done. Right. So if you incentivize something, that action that you're incentivizing is what's going to get done. It may not be the result that you want. If you're trying to achieve X, but you're paying for A. Right. Well, only A is going to get done, maybe not X. But it's that same idea of like, you want something to get done, give people an incentive to do it. I agree. I mean, that goes across the board for just about anything. So, hey, listen, Harley, if you're trying to make this electric thing work out, that that would be the smartest step ever. It's uh, go co-op so you can only put up half the money. The dealership's going to get in on this thing. It's a long-term uh, uh, investment. And the dealership should be smart enough to look at this and go, yeah, this is the customer that's going to walk in and spend let's say half an hour to get a full charge out of one of these things. Right. That's a lot of time, man. Right. A lot happens in a half an hour when you're in a retail station. At some point or another, you're going to spend some money. Like just looking at, let's say that live wire is 15 kilowatt hours. Let's say someone's basically at zero wants to at least top it up or get halfway. They're going to be there for like an hour. Depending yeah. what your what your infrastructure is and what kind of charging system you're using, they're going to be there at least half an hour. Right. So you've got a captive person for half an hour. What are you going to do with them? <laughs> How else are you going to have that? It's like having a gas station at your dealership, man. Right. And that it takes longer. You, right. It's literally a captive And you control the pump and it's not like that yeah. crazy super low speed where it's, it's the, it's, it's the ultimate, you know, answer to the question every dealer has. How do we bring in more customers? Well, your, your best customer is a repeat customer. And what's better than a repeat customer than an electric bike owner who needs to have you charge their bike? This is the same reason that we have, that we can't pump our own gas in Oregon. Right. Because the, the gas stations figure out, Hey, if the person doesn't have to stand around the pump while it's filling things up, 
they're way more likely to go inside and buy a coffee or buy a Snickers bar or a sandwich, whatever it is. And most gas stations don't make money on gas. Oh, gas is a loss leader or at best a break even thing where the mini mart is where they're making their money. All all that stuff stuff is high margin. You go back east. One of my favorite places back east is a Sheets. Oh, oh, yeah. I'm not a Wawa person. I'm a Sheets <laughs> I guy. Say, I, was, I was waiting for you to say Wawa. But they're smart where they're like, there's like, yeah, okay, we've got, because they're also known for having the cheapest gasoline in, in town. Yep. And you go and it, you fill up, but like you go inside and they've got their whole made to order food thing. They've got the whole setup where like, and yeah. it's nice. And it's nice. And you went like, we used to go when I was in school, like just to get, just to get food and make like Sheets runs. But it's this idea of like, yeah, you're here to get gas, and we're really not trying to make money off off the gasoline that we're selling you. What we really want you to do is to come inside, let us make you a sandwich, yeah. buy a soda from us, get your cigarettes, get your lotto ticket, whatever that is, because we're just cha-ching, 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 margin, 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 margin. Yeah. It's the same thing. The Some same marketing genius plan. came up with that idea, and they did it, and it's making them money. You know where they learned Harley? that? What? Penn State Business School. There you have it. Do you know something about that place? I went to school <laughs> with one of the Sheets kids. Ah. Uh, but they're yeah they're a Pennsylvania family. So Harley, the good news for Harley is they already have the retail infrastructure in place. They do. They don't have to spend a dime on that. Right. It's already there, and they're geniuses at it. Every every Harley dealership you go to has a great selection of apparel and their chrome section and blah blah blah. Dude, put in the stations. It'll make you guys money. It'll pay for itself a thousand times over. Put in a little coffee bar. Get my little sandwich on. And I think all we're asking for is a 5% commission on this idea. Daddy gets a taste. Dude, just a little taste. Yeah. Well, that Shaheen, I think we just fixed uh, Harley Davidson. I think so, too. Boom. I'm good. Air high five. High five. Hey, you know what else? What's that? I think we only said Ducati like twice. Yeah. Yeah. This is the first episode that any drinking game would have been failed. Yeah. You'd be sober still. Well, with that, sir, what do you say? You know, I say safety third. All right. Good talk. I'll see you out there. Bye. Coda, what are you doing? Coda, you waited till the end. I'm proud of you. Oh my God, Coda. Coda, you waited. I feel like I'm like 10 seconds too late. <laughs> that was amazing. Coda, what are you doing? That motherfucker was like, and now. <laughs>